Book Two, Chapter Eight of The Crossing by Winston Churchill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight to St. Louis. By eleven o'clock the next morning, I had wound up my affairs, having arranged with a young lawyer of my acquaintance to take over such cases as I had, and I was busy in my room packing my saddlebags for the journey. The warm scents of spring were wafted through the open door and window, smells of the damp earth giving forth the green things, and tender shades greeted my eyes when I paused and raised my head to think. Purple buds littered the black ground before my doorstep, and against the living green of the grass I saw the red stain of a robin's breast as he hopped spasmodically hither and thither, now pausing immovable with his head raised now tossing triumphantly a wiggling worm from the sod suddenly he flew away and i heard a voice from the street side that brought me stark upright oh there neighbor can you direct me to the mansion of that celebrated barrister mr ritchie there was no mistaking that voice it was nicholas temple's i heard a laugh and an answer the gate slammed and mr temple himself in a long gray riding-coat booted and spurred stood before me davy he cried come out here and hug me well you look as if i were your grandmother's ghost and if you were i answered you could not have surprised me more where have you been at jonesboro acting the gallant with the widow winning and losing skins and cowbells and land at rattle and snap horse-racing with that wild mr jackson faith he nearly shot the top of my head off because i beat him at greasy cove i laughed despite my anxiety and sevier i demanded you have not heard how sevier got off exclaimed nick egad that was a crowning stroke of genius cosby and evans captains green and gibson and sevier's two boys whom you met on the nolichucky rode over the mountains to morganton green and gibson and sevier's boys hid themselves with the horses in a clump outside the town while cosby and evans disguised as bumpkins in hunting shirts jogged into the town with sevier's racing mare between them they jogged into the town i say through the crowds of white trash and rode up to the courthouse where sevier was being tried for his life evans stood at the open door and held the mare and gaped while Cosby stalked in and shouldered his way to the front within four feet of the bar, like a big, awkward countryman. Jack Sevier saw him, and he saw Evans with the mare outside. Then, by thunder, Cosby takes a step right up to the bar and cries out, "'Judge! Aren't you about done with that man?' Faith, it was like Judgment Day, such a mix-up as there was after that and nollichucky jack made three leaps and got on the mare and in the confusion cosby and evans were off too and the whole state of north carolina couldn't catch em then nick sighed i'd have given my soul to have been there he said come in said i for lack of something better cursed if you haven't given me a sweet reception davy said he have you lost your practice or is there a lady here you rogue and he poked into the cupboard with his stick hello where are you going now he added with his eye falling on the saddlebags i had it on my lips to say and then i remembered mr wharton's injunction i'm going on a journey said i when said nick 
I leave in about an hour, said I. He sat down. Then I leave, too, he said. What do you mean, Nick? I demanded. I mean that I will go with you, said he. But I shall be gone three months or more, I protested. I've nothing to do, said Nick placidly. A vague trouble had been working in my mind, but now the full horror of it dawned upon me. I was going to St. Louis. Mrs. Temple and Harry Riddle were gone there, so Polly Ann had avowed, and Nick could not help meeting Riddle. Sorely beset, I bent over to roll up a shirt and refrained from answering. He came and laid a hand on my shoulder. "'What the devil ails you, Davy?' he cried. "'If it is an elopement, of course I won't press you. I'm hanged if I'll make a third. "'It's no elopement,' I retorted, my face growing hot in spite of myself then i go with you said he for i vow you need taking care of you can't put me off i say and never in my life have i had such a reception and from my own first cousin too i was in a quandary so totally unforeseen was this situation and then a glimmer of hope came to me that perhaps his mother and riddle might not be in st louis after all I recalled the conversation in the cabin and reflected that this wayward pair had stranded on so many beaches, had drifted off again on so many tides, that one place could scarce hold them long. Perchance they had sunk. Who could tell? I turned to Nick, who stood watching me. It was not that I did not want you, I said. You must believe that. I've wanted you ever since that night long ago when I slipped out of your bed and ran away. I'm going first to St. Louis and then to New Orleans on a mission of much delicacy, a mission that requires discretion and secrecy. You may come with all my heart, with one condition only, that you do not ask my business. Done, cried Nick. Davy, I was always sure of you. You're the one fixed quantity in my life to St. Louis, eh? and to New Orleans. Egad, what havoc we'll make among the Creole girls. May I bring my nigger? He'll do things for you, too. By all means, said I, laughing. Only hurry. I'll run to the inn, said Nick, and be back in ten minutes. He got as far as the door, slapped his thigh, and looked back. Davy, we may run across. Who? I asked with a catch of my breath. Harry Riddle he answered and if so may god have mercy on his soul he ran down the path the gate clicked and i heard him whistling in the street on his way to the inn after dinner we rode down to the ferry nick on the thoroughbred which had beat mr jackson's horse and his man benji on a scraggly pony behind benji was a small black negro with a very squat nose alert and talkative save when nick turned on him benji had been born at temple bow he worshipped his master and all that pertained to him and he showered upon me all the respect and attention that was due to a member of the temple family for this i was very grateful it would have been an easier journey had we taken a boat down to fort massac but such a proceeding might have drawn too much attention to our expedition i have no space to describe that trip overland which reminded me at every stage of the march against kaskaskia the woods the chocolate streams 
the coffee-colored swamps flecked with dead leaves, and at length the prairies, the grass not waist-high now, but young and tender, giving forth the acrid smell of spring. Nick was delighted. He made me recount every detail of my trials as a drummer-boy, or kept me in continuous spells of laughter over his own escapades. In short, I began to realize that we were as near to each other as though we had never been parted. We looked down upon Kaskaskia from the self-same spot where I had stood on the bluff with Colonel Clark, and the sounds were even then the same the sweet tones of the church bell and the lowing of the cattle we found a few virginians and pennsylvanians scattered in amongst the french the forerunners of that change which was to come over this country and we spent the night with an old friend father gibault still the faithful pastor of his flock cheerful though the savings of his lifetime had never been repaid by that country to which he had given his allegiance so freely Traveling by easy stages, on the afternoon of the second day after leaving Kaskaskia, we picked our way down the high bluff that rises above the American bottom, and saw below us that yellow monster among the rivers, the Mississippi. A blind monster he seemed, searching with troubled arms among the islands for his bed, swept onward by an inexorable force and on his heaving shoulders he carried great trees pilfered from the unknown forests of the north down in the moist and shady bottom we came upon the log hut of a half-breed trapper and he agreed to ferry us across as for our horses a keelboat must be sent after these and monsieur gratiot would no doubt easily arrange for this and so we found ourselves about five o'clock on that saturday evening embarked in a wide pirogue on the current dodging the driftwood avoiding the eddies and drawing near to a village set on a low bluff on the spanish side and gleaming white among the trees and as i looked the thought came again like a twinge of pain that mrs temple and riddle might be there thinking themselves secure in this spot so removed from the world and its doings how now my man of mysterious affairs cried nick from the bottom of the boat you are as puckered as a sour persimmon have you a treaty with spain in your pocket or a declaration of war what can trouble you nothing if you do not i answered smiling lord since we don't admire the same lady then said nick pierrot he cried turning to one of the boatmen il y a de belles the man missed a stroke in his astonishment and the boat swung lengthwise in the swift current dom monsieur Ilion, he answered where did you learn french nick i demanded mr mason had it hammered into me he answered carelessly his eyes on the line of keelboats moored along the shore our guide shot the canoe deftly between two of these the prow grounded in the yellow mud and we landed on spanish territory we looked about us while our packs were being unloaded and the place had a strange flavor in that year of our lord seventeen eighty nine 
a swarthy boatman in a tow-shirt with a bright handkerchief on his head stared at us over the gunwale of one of the keel-boats and spat into the still yellow water three high-cheeked indians with smudgy faces and dirty red blankets regarded us in silent contempt and by the waterside above us was a sled loaded with a huge water cask a bony mustang pony between the shafts and a chanting negro dipping gourdfuls from the river a road slanted up the little limestone bluff and above and below us stone houses could be seen nestling into the hill houses higher on the river side and with galleries there we climbed the bluff benji at our heels with the saddlebags and found ourselves on a yellow clay street lined with grass and wild flowers a great peace hung over the village an air of a different race a restfulness strange to a kentuckian clematis and honeysuckle climbed the high palings and behind the privacy of these low big-chimneyed houses of limestone weathered gray could be seen their roofs sloping in gentle curves to the shaded porches in front or again houses of posts set upright in the ground and these filled between with plaster and so immaculately whitewashed that they gleamed against the green of the trees which shaded them behind the houses was often a kind of pink-and-cream paradise of flowering fruit trees so dear to the french settlers there were vineyards too and thrifty patches of vegetables and lines of flowers set in the carefully raked mould we walked on enraptured by the sights around us by the heavy scent of the roses and the blossoms here was a quaint stone horse-mill a stable or a barn set uncouthly on the street a baker's shop with a glimpse of the white-capped baker through the shaded doorway and an appetizing smell of hot bread in the air a little farther on we heard the tinkle of the blacksmith's hammer and the man himself looked up from where the hoof rested on his leather apron to give us a kindly bonsoir messieurs as we passed and here was a cabaret with the inevitable porch from whence came the sharp click of billiard balls we walked on stopping now and again to peer between the palings when we heard amidst the rattling of a cart and the jingling of bells a chorus of voices a cheval a cheval pour aller voir mamie long 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 a shaggy indian pony came ambling around the corner between the long shafts of a charrette a bareheaded young man in tow-shirt and trousers was driving and three laughing girls were seated on the stools in the cart behind him suddenly before i quite realized what had happened the young man pulled up the pony the girls fell silent and nick was standing in the middle of the road with his hat in his hand bowing elaborately je vois salut mademoiselles he cried mais on de chabon pour voir mes dergères chez monsieur grantillon sapristi exclaimed the young man but he laughed the young women stood up giggling and peered at nick over the young man's shoulder one of them wore a fresh red-and-white calamanco gown she had a complexion of ivory tinged with red raven hair and dusky long-lashed mischievous eyes brimming with merriment volunteer monsieur 
she answered before the others could catch their breath. Premier droite and premier gauche. Allons, Gaspard, she cried, tapping the young man sharply on the shoulder. Est tu fou? Gaspard came to himself, flicked the pony, and they went off down the road with shouts of laughter, while Nick stood waving his hat until they turned the corner. Egad, said he, I'd take to the highway if I could be sure of holding up such a cargo every time. Off with you, Benji, and find out where she lives, he cried, and the obedient Benji dropped the saddle-bags as though such commands were not uncommon. Pick up those bags, Benji, said I, laughing. Benji glanced uncertainly at his master. Do as I tell you, you black scalawag, said Nick, or I'll tan you. What are you waiting for? Marse Davy, began Benji, rolling his eyes in discomfiture. Look you, Nick Temple, said I. When you shipped with me, you promised that I should command. I can't afford to have the town about our ears. Oh, very well, if you put it that way, said Nick. A little honest diversion. Pick up the bags, Benji, and follow the parson. Obeying Mademoiselle's directions, we trudged on until we came to a comfortable stone house, surrounded by trees and set in a half-block bordered by a seven-foot paling. Hardly had we opened the gate when a tall gentleman of grave demeanor and sober dress rose from his seat on the porch, and I recognized my friend of Cahokia days, Monsieur Gratiot. He was a little more portly, his hair was dressed now in an eel skin, and he looked every inch the man of affairs that he was. He greeted us kindly and bade us come up on the porch, where he read my letter of introduction. Why, he exclaimed immediately, giving me a cordial grasp of the hand, of course, the strategist, the John Law, the reader of character of Colonel Clark's army. Yes, and worse, the prophet Mr. Ritchie. And why worse, sir? I asked. You predicted that Congress would never repay me for the little loan I advanced to your colonel. It was not such a little loan, monsieur, I said. N'importe, said he. I went to Richmond with my box of scripts and promissory notes, but I was not ill-repaid. If I did not get my money, I acquired at least a host of distinguished acquaintances. But, Mr. Ritchie, you must introduce me to your friend. My cousin, Mr. Nicholas Temple, I said. Monsieur Grantiat looked at him fixedly. Of the Charleston Temples? he asked, and a sudden vague fear seized me. Yes, said Temple. There was once a family of that name. And now, said Monsieur Grantiat, puzzled. Now, said Nick, now they've become a worthless lot of refugees and outlaws who by good fortune have escaped the gallows. Before Monsieur Grantiat could answer, a child came running around the corner of the house and stood, surprised, staring at us. Nick made a face, stooped down, and twirled his finger. Shouting with a terrified glee, the boy fled to the garden path, Nick after him. I like Mr. Temple, said Monsieur Gratiot, smiling. He is young, but he seems to have had a history. The revolution ruined many families. His was one, I answered with what firmness of tone I could muster. And then Nick came back, carrying the shouting youngster on his shoulders. At that instant a lady appeared in the doorway, 
leading another child, and we were introduced to Madame Gratiat. Gentlemen, said Monsieur Gratiat, you must make my house your home. I fear your visit will not be as long as I could wish, Mr. Ritchie, he added, turning to me, if Mr. Wharton correctly states your business. I have an engagement to have my furs in New Orleans by a certain time. I am late in loading, and as there is a moon, I am sending off my boats tomorrow night. The men will have to work on Sunday. We were fortunate to come in such good season, I answered. After a delicious supper of gumbo, a creole dish, of fricassee, of creme brulee, of red wine and fresh wild strawberries, we sat on the porch. The crickets chirped in the garden, the moon cast fantastic shadows from the pecan tree on the grass, while Nick, struggling with his French, talked to Madame Gratiot and now and then their gay laughter made monsieur gratiot pause and smile as he talked to me of my errand it seemed strange to me that a man who had lost so much by his espousal of our cause should still be faithful to the american republic although he lived in louisiana he had never renounced the american allegiance which he had taken at cahokia he regarded with no favor the pretensions of spain toward kentucky and remarkably enough he looked forward even then to the day when louisiana would belong to the republic i exclaimed at this mr ritchie said he the most casual student of your race must come to the same conclusion you have seen for yourself how they have overrun and conquered kentucky and the cumberland districts despite a hideous warfare waged by all the tribes your people will not be denied and when they get to louisiana they will take it as they take everything else he was a man strong in argument was monsieur gratiot for he loved it and he beat me fairly may he said finally spain might as well try to damn the mississippi as to damn your commerce on it as for france i love her though my people were exiled to switzerland by the edict of nantes but France is rotten through the prodigality of her kings and nobles, and she cannot hold Louisiana. The kingdom is sunk in debt. He cleared his throat. As for this Wilkinson of whom you speak, I know something of him. I have no doubt that Miro pensions him, and I know Miro likewise, and you will obtain no proof of that you will however discover in new orleans many things of interest to your government and to the federal party in kentucky colonel chateau and i will give you letters to certain french gentlemen in new orleans who can be trusted this song gray for instance who puts a french louisiana into his prayers he has never forgiven o'reilly and his spaniards for the murder of his father in sixty nine sangre is a good fellow a cousin of the current marquis in france and his ancestors held many positions of trust in the colony under the french regime he entertains lavishly at les Isles, his plantation on the mississippi he has the gossip of new orleans at his tongue's tip and you will be suspected of nothing save a desire to amuse yourself if you go there he paused interrupted by the laughter of the others when strangers of note or position drift here and pass on to new orleans 
I always give them letters to St. Gré. He has a charming daughter and a worthless son. Monsieur Grantiap produced his tabatiere and took a pinch of snuff. I summoned my courage for the topic which had trembled all the evening on my lips. Some years ago, Monsieur Grantiat, a lady and a gentleman were rescued on the Wilderness Trail in Kentucky. They left us for St. Louis. Did they come here? Monsieur Grantiat leaned forward quickly. They were people of quality, he demanded. Yes. And their name? They... they did not say. It must have been the Cleves, he cried. It can have been no other. Tell me. A woman still beautiful, commanding, of perhaps eight-and-thirty? A woman who had a sorrow, a great sorrow, though we have never learned it? And Mr. Cleve, a man of fashion, ill-content, too, and pining for the life of a capital? Yes, I said eagerly, my voice sinking near to a whisper. Yes, it is they. And are they here? Monsieur Gratiot took another pinch of snuff. It seemed an age before he answered. It's curious that you should mention them, for I gave them letters to New Orleans, amongst others to St. Gré. Mrs. Cleve was, what shall I say, haunted. Monsieur Cleve talked of nothing but Paris, where they had lived once, and at last she gave in. They have gone there. To Paris? I said, taking breath. Yes, it's more than a year ago, he continued, seeming not to notice my emotion. They went by way of New Orleans in one of Chateau's boats. Mrs. Cleve seemed a woman with a great sorrow. End of chapter 8